te honore he kororia ki te atua. Mongorongo ki te whenoa, whakarapai ki nga tangata katoa. Kokoare te monga, nga toto o te karaiti te awa, ko ihu karaiti toku rangatira, ko te hahi o peterahima toku marae, ko kawan toku ignoa whanau, ko mune toku ignoa. Kia ora katou, Morena. Good morning, everybody. It is great to be here with you today. So just to recap what I've just said, I started with a karakia, saying, honor and glory to God, let there be peace and tranquility on earth, goodwill, goodwill to all people. I then shared a little bit of my mihi, where Calvary is my mountain, the blood of Jesus is my river, Jesus is my leader, Bethlehem Church, Baptist Church is where I gather on my marae, Cowan is my family name and Bernie is my name and uh, it is lovely to be with all you all this morning. Good morning. Um, well, I hope you've had a wonderful day so far. Aren't Carl and Ken hilarious? Uh, it's, it's been just over a year since I was last with you guys, and you were in a completely different building. Uh, so I did get a little lost in the way here this morning, but don't worry, I found my way here. Um, but as mentioned, my name is Bernie, and um, it is great to be with you this morning. Colin asked me to come along and share with you this morning so he could take a bit of break with his family. Um, and I was overjoyed to be able to come and share with you uh, once again. A few things have changed in my life since I was last with you. Uh, I am no longer working at Bethlehem Baptist Church. I am a full-time student studying uh, theology at Kerry Bible College up in Auckland, doing it by distance. Um, we have a daughter, my wife and I, her name is MJ. She is down the back. She is gorgeous. Uh, her name, MJ stands for Morgan Jade. And uh, I am the national producer for an event called the Global Leadership Summit, which is actually happening later this week. So my mind is, was in two places I was preparing. It was for this, but also making sure we have everything sorted out for the summit this week, which we are live streaming thanks to COVID and the unique time of life we are living in right now. Um, but this morning, I'm going to share with you a talk uh, that I did a few weeks ago at BBC uh, as part of a series called Things Jesus Never Said. Um, you might be asking, why would a church talk about the things that Jesus didn't say? Isn't that the whole point of church, is to talk about what he did say? Um, and if, you are, if you're maybe a new to Christianity or you don't know much about the Bible, if you look in the New Testament, these four books, they're called the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in certain Bibles, there's these words that are in red. And those words in red are the words of Jesus. These words are the worldly. These words have power that was unmeasurable. But in order to find the true power of what Jesus said, sometimes you need to look at what he didn't say. Sometimes it helps us to look at what he didn't say or what he could have said, what I might have said, but what he didn't say, to truly embrace the power of what it is that he and did say. Over the course of the series, we looked at what Jesus didn't say about forgiveness, what he didn't say about entitlement, and what he didn't say about suffering. And if you want to check out those talks as well, they're on the Bethlehem Baptist website. Um, but for today, we're going to be looking at what he didn't say about happiness. What I know about almost all of you, and you know, we just met, but what I know about almost all of you is that you probably want to be happy. I don't know anybody who says, my goal in life is to be miserable. I never want to be happy. What we're going to look, do today is look at what Jesus didn't say about happiness to find the power of what it is that he did actually say. And to get us in the vibe of things this morning, just to start with a bit of fun, let me give you a few things that he didn't say just for fun before we get into the heart of the message today. 
Jesus did not say, go into all the world and preach whatever makes people happy. Jesus didn't say, whoever wants to be my disciple must affirm themselves, avoid the cross, and follow their own heart. Jesus never said, ask and it will be given to you because God is your celestial genie granting wishes. And he didn't say, go and do what makes you happy. Jesus never said any of these things about our happiness. This morning, we're going to focus around the story in the Gospel of John. The story is in chapter 8, and it's about a woman who is caught in adultery and then brought by the Pharisees before Jesus. Strap yourselves in because we're going to be get to the very end of the story. There's, a, there's the part where Jesus says something uh, that has power for us. Because what he did say has the power, has the potential to transform our lives. So if you, if you, the, the verses are going to be on the screen, uh, but in John 8, verse 2. At dawn, he, being Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Let's just pause there just for a minute because I want you to visualize this. So Jesus is hanging out. He's gathered this group of people around him. He's leading a Bible study, maybe leading a life group. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this, this, this hypocritical uh, religious group of men drag this woman that was caught in the act of adultery towards the group, interrupts what Jesus is doing, presents her before them and says that she needs to be killed for her acts. Jesus, what do you say about this? There's a couple of things that if we had more time, I'd like to talk about. The first is, where is the guy in this situation? It takes two to tango. Where's the dude? He's obviously been left out of the story for some reason. The secondly thing is, where were these guys hanging out that they managed to catch a woman in the act of adultery? Where were they peeping? What were they doing? There's a whole separate deal going on here, but nonetheless, these guys bring a woman caught in the act of adultery, and as you imagine, she was, if she was caught in the act, she'd be barely dressed, and this would have been the lowest, most humiliating moment of her life. What's interesting that we see in those verses is that the men didn't care one bit about her. They were just using her as a tool to trap Jesus. They made this woman stand before the group, barely dressed, and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught. In the act of adultery, in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Imagine this, they're going to publicly throw stones at this woman until she is killed. What, and they ask Jesus, what do you say? Verse 6 shows us the motives behind their question, that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. They put Jesus in what appears to be a no-win situation. Why? Because according to the law of Moses, the woman was guilty, and according to the law of Moses, she should be stoned to death. So Jesus is in this odd spot, because if he agrees and says, yes, go ahead, kill her, he loses his reputation of being all kind and all loving. But on the other hand, if he goes, oh, it's not so much of a big deal, let's let it go. Then he's breaking the law of Moses and apparently condoning the sin of adultery. So what does Jesus do? In the second part of verse 6, we start to see what he does. 
But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. What did Jesus write in the sand? The answer is we don't know for sure, but we have some ideas. Later, manuscripts say that Jesus wrote the sins of the hypocritical men accusing this woman in the sand. We don't know for sure that it's true, but I tend to think it is likely, and one of the reasons I believe that is because of the words used in the original language when they're translated to mean write down. One is a word that means to write down, which is graphene. The other word, which is used in this context, means to write down record against someone, catagraphene. Kata meaning against. So whatever Jesus was writing in the sand, it was something against something or against someone. So let's picture this in a modern day context, maybe. So Jesus is looking out at this crowd of Pharisees, and maybe he's Phil, Phil the Pharisee. And he goes, oh, Phil, I don't have to go back too far to know that last Tuesday you were looking for bikini babes on the internet. And he writes it down in the sand. And maybe he's doing this for each of the men that are standing there in this group. He's just writing them down in the sand in front of them, each and every single one of them who are bringing accusations against this woman. While he's doing this, the Pharisees keep questioning, what do you think? What should we do? What do you, want us to, what do you, what do you say we should do? In verse 7, we read that when they kept on questioning him, Jesus, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and continued to write on the ground. At this, those who had heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus and the woman were left standing there. What's interesting as well, if you look at the original language here, when it's saying without sin, it doesn't just mean those who may be without sin at that time. It actually goes deeper to that to say those who have even never thought about sinning. It means literally without even wanting to sin. So for us, you know, even when we're trying our best, even when we're trying to do the best, you know, we get caught every now and again. You know, the sin is insidious. You might be driving down the road through Bayfair Roundabout, and boom, rush of emotion towards another driver. You want them gone. Maybe, you know, you're at school or at the workplace, and boom, out of nowhere, this thought that leads you astray comes. We know that when we dive into what Jesus is saying here, that to be without sin, even without even thinking about sinning, is impossible for us. And what we see here in the Scriptures is that the Pharisees in the story realize this too. So what happens next? One by one, they begin to leave. Phil leaves first. That's not in there. I I added that part. But one by one, they leave, and they leave the stones and the dust, and they walk away until only it's the woman and Jesus left. In verse 10, we read, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you. But what does Jesus say next? He doesn't say, then neither do I condemn you, so go now and do whatever makes you happy. He doesn't say, go now, follow your heart, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't hurt anybody. He doesn't say, go now, and you do you, boo-boo, do whatever makes you happy. He doesn't say any of that. What he does say, and he doesn't just say it, he declares it. Jesus declares, go now, leave your life of sin. This wasn't a condemning, judgmental statement. 
This was full of love, and you can feel the urgency. Go now, don't wait. You're free. Go now, don't wait, live a better life. Go now, don't wait, you don't have to live in shame anymore. You don't have to live for the lower things of this world. You don't have to be afraid or live in darkness. I've set you free. Be free from your life of sin. It's full of love. It is full of grace. You don't have to be held hostage anymore. You're free to go and walk in truth. Why do we give in to the temptation of, to sin? The answer is that it looks appealing, that it's fun. And, you know, if we're honest, right up until the point when it doesn't become fun anymore, it is. Hebrews calls temptation the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's pleasurable for a little while and then it's gone, or it's kind of like the situation where a mouse on a wheel and the cheese is in front of us and we're constantly running and running and running but never actually getting the cheese. The fleeting pleasures of sin. What does it do? Temptation promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience, which is sin to God, and doing this eventually results in pain to you and to sometimes others. Sin and temptation, it gets us because it promises satisfaction. These are some of the things we might have heard in our own heads at different times. You're going to like this. It's going to be good. It's going to make you feel happy. It's go you're going to really enjoy it. But it never delivers. It promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God. It leads us away from God's design for life, which eventually leads to pain Sin is corrosive, it's deceptive, and its only goal is to steal us away from the light and love of our Lord. So how did this woman find herself in this situation? We have no idea what kind of woman she is. The Scriptures don't tell us. Maybe she was an evil woman who woke up that morning and was like, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to destroy a marriage. I tend to think that's not the case. I tend to think that she was an ordinary woman, a, a lovely kind of woman, maybe a God-fearing woman. And maybe in a modern context, her story would have looked a bit like this. Maybe she was married at a young age, and over time, her husband had become inattentive, took her for granted, maybe had become verbally abusive. One day at work, a new guy starts at the office. He's nice. He pays her attention. He compliments her work. He likes her ideas. He notices her hair. It's innocent. There's nothing wrong. He's, he's funny and he's thoughtful. Next, he starts commenting on her Instagram posts, maybe matches some of those hearts, sends fire for a few of her stories. And she finds herself thinking, maybe. And she looks forward to seeing this guy at work each day. One day at work, they happen to stay late, and he finally opens up about his marriage struggles, about how he wished he'd married someone maybe like you. They begin to connect on a deeper level. He tells her, I think I made a mistake. He accidentally brushes her arm, or was it on purpose? She realizes that her emotions are out of control, they're, they're, they're wrong, but they feel so right at the same time time. He's what's missing. He'd make me happy. Best, she talks to her best friend who says, you go, you go follow your heart. You do what you do, boo-boo. And step 
by seemingly innocent step, one seemingly insignificant decision after another, after another, after another, after, until she finds herself barely dressed in the most publicly shamed moment of her life. How did she get here? Sin promises satisfaction at the cost, at the disobedience to God, which can lead to eventual pain for yourself. Why do so many of us end up in similar places today? We live in a very relativistic culture. What does the idea of relativism mean? It's relativism is the belief that everything is relative. In other words, there is no absolute truth. You'll hear this all the time in culture today. Well, that may be true to you, but it's not true to me. That's your truth, but I have a different truth. You live your truth, I'll live my truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth, so I'm just going to do whatever makes me happy. What's true to you isn't true to me, so you do you, and I'm going to do me, all right? Without a belief in absolute truth, truth is defined by whatever makes me happy or makes me feel fulfilled. When the bottom line is my happiness or my search for fulfillment, uh, that becomes the standard by which I judge my actions. Relativism hates the word obedience because it means giving up your pursuit of happiness for the sake of somebody else's. And a lot of us wrestle with the idea that to be a Christian, you have to obey the rules. The rules that are of holiness, which is obedience to God's law, are in place to steal our happiness. That you can't be holy and happy. Many of us also share another perspective that if I obey God in return, I'll be blessed more or happier. That if I follow God's rules, then my life should be all roses perspective. Both of these perspectives rob us of a truth, uh, rob us of a bigger picture of what our relationship with Jesus can be like. So if our pursuit of worldly happiness is actually a pursuit of sin that leads to our own detriment and our relationship with Jesus doesn't equate to pay and obey and everything will be okay, then what is it actually supposed to be like? It's this. Jesus' death on the cross saves us, blesses us, enables us to come to Him. We don't deserve or could do anything to deserve this. He invites us to turn to Him, be with Him, follow His leading. Our closeness to Him results in us feeling fulfilled. We've found the place that humans are supposed to be. Temptation tries to pull us away. Bad days still happen. But Jesus is there saying, be near. Don't go after that other stuff. It won't leave you happy or fulfilled. You can't get more blessing or happiness by obeying. We obey and follow because we have already been blessed and because Jesus is the true source of fulfillment. As I was preparing this talk, I wanted to prepare a picture that helps us understand this a little bit better. And it it was this. So if if you turn on your imagination engines in your brain for a little bit just this morning, imagine yourself waking up in a desert wasteland. As far as the eye can see, there's nothing but coarse sand. You feel the hot heat against your face. The sun is beating down, and as far as you see around you, there's no shade, there's no resort, there's no peace. It's just this arid environment. And you wander around aimlessly, hoping, pursuing some kind of shelter, some kind of safety. And after a time, you start to see on the horizon these mirages, 
Maybe it's a hotel. It's a four-star. It's all right. Maybe in the other distance, you see a brand new Hilux pickup truck that would drive me to safety. Maybe over there, there's McDonald's with an unlimited supply of cheeseburgers out the front of it. Maybe over here, there's a raging party full of scantily clad women. That's the place where I want to be. And as you start to walk in those different directions, you find you never actually arrive. And you're getting broken down, worn and worn down, and to the point you can't take anymore, and you collapse into the sand, waiting for the vultures to come. It's in this moment of complete surrender to the world around you that you hear a voice say, I've got you. Come with me, and you feel yourself being lifted from the sand. The mysterious person leads you through the sands of the desert until you begin to see the yellow turn to green. It's grass. You start to feel refreshed. There's some trees around you now. The shade of the branches leaves cool feelings on your sunburnt skin. The man brings you to a well and says, drink and be restored. Here is a radio so that you can talk to me. There is some shelter. I'm going back out there to look for others, but I'll be back soon. And he turns to leave. You look around your surroundings. It's a, it's a basic setup, but all the essentials for desert survival are there. You drink deep the cool waters and then go and sit under a nearby tree. You feel energy and strength return to your body. Every now and again, the other man returns with others he's found in the wilderness, and you help them get settled. Some of them are okay people. Others kind of frustrate you, but you form a community and you work together. You're still in the desert. Sometimes the wind blows hard and the sand feels like sandpaper. The sun burns the skin, but you do have everything you need. Every now and again, you look out from the oasis in the distance, you see those same mirages, the houses with the swimming pools, the big SUVs drying around, the parties with the loud music. And every now and again, you feel yourself pulled towards them to the point you're actually stepping out of the oasis toward them. It's in this moment you feel a hand touch your shoulder, and it's the man that saved you from the desert. And he says, turn from these things. They will only destroy you. And then as he continues to lay his hand upon you, the mirages vanish from your sight. One of the community members eventually decides to leave the oasis one afternoon. He's gone for a week. Eventually, the man that saves carries him back in one day on his shoulder and puts him down by the well. The man has lost a leg and an eye. He tells you that he had ventured out after one of those mirages and that the pursuit of it was great. It was awesome right up until the point he was attacked by bandits and marauders who left him for dead. Obedience to God is like this. It's staying near to the source of fulfillment. It's staying near to the oasis. It's important for us to keep this mindset in mind when we think of the idea of holiness. Because we can struggle with the perspective of the Pharisees in, in today's story because we know we can always come back. For them in that time, the Jewish perspective of sin was that it was almost like a nuclear accident versus a momentary problem that goes away when we ask Jesus to forgive us. To these Pharisees, sin would lay waste to all of creation in an ongoing fashion, like how radiation damage has long and lasting effects. It was so damaging that it would scorch the earth that they walked on. So to involve yourself in sin meant death. Physical death was as sin was abhorrent to life. For this poor woman who had been caught in adultery, 
to the Pharisees, there was no way back for her at all. She was spoiled goods. For a lot of Christians, we can base our idea of who God is and what He is like on two incredible stories, the prodigal son and the lost sheep. Both of these stories are wonderful. They're incredible stories of forgiveness and coming home. But if we're not careful, they can create a couple of sub-ideas in our minds as we walk through our life and our faith. And that is asking forgiveness is always easier than asking permission or obeying. And that I can do what I want, Jesus will always take me back. The last point will always be true. Jesus always will. His grace and forgiveness has no limit. So you'll always be welcome home. But what these stories are also trying to tell you is that humankind at its best, at its happiest, is when it's close to God, when it's with the father and the prodigal son story, when it's with the shepherd being carried back in the, in the, in the lost sheep story. For all they lack, if we didn't glean the smallest bit of perspective from the Jewish people, it would be their perspective on the destructive and pervasive nature of sin. They took it seriously, and I think for many of us, we underestimate the corrosiveness and pervasiveness of it, and how it can quickly drive a wedge between us and where we're supposed to be. Regardless of how far you go out, you will always be welcomed back, you will always be loved to illustrate this even further, I invite us to put ourselves in the shoes of the Father and in the shoes of the shepherd. Maybe what I'm about to describe is familiar to you. Maybe you've had kids or family members or friends who have done the following. They run off, they do what they want, they hurt others, and then they finally come back. You greet them, you welcome them home, you cry, you love them, just like the Father and the shepherd did in those stories. A couple of days later, you sit down with them and you talk to them about what it means to be part of the house, what it means to be a true sheep. And they hang around for a while. They seem to be growing and they seem to be learning, but then they go away again, out back into the world in pursuit of something that's going to make them happy. As a father myself, I know how heartbreaking it would be. I still love them. I will always welcome them home, but I know at the same time that they're selling themselves short of what they truly could be like. Consistently, we will find ourselves looking for happiness in the wrong places. Max Licato has a great story to illustrate this. You find a fish on the beach. Is he happy? What can we give to this fish to make him happy? A pile of cash? Will a pile of cash make the fish happy? No, of course not. What if you gave him a beach chair and some sunglasses? Is that going to make the, the fish happy? No. What if you gave him unlimited margaritas, unlimited pina coladas? Is that going to make the fish happy? No. What if you gave him a whole stack of Playboy playfish, images of blowfish and goldfish? Is this going to make the fish happy? The answer is no. The fish will never be happy on the beach because he wasn't designed for the beach. You weren't made for earth. You were made for eternity. No new car, boat, boyfriend, vacation, likes on Instagram, amount of money, good hair, good body, pair of shoes will give you the fulfillment that your heart craves. Some of us this morning are there right now. We're stuck in a cycle of unfulfillment, being pulled out into the sands away from the oasis. Maybe we can't stop eating. Maybe we can't stop overspending. 
Maybe smoking and drinking and taking prescription medication is overwhelming us. Maybe we're stuck in the lust-filled world of porn. Maybe we find ourselves consistently in the wrong type of relationships. Sin promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God. So what do you do when you find yourself trapped? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He'll provide a way out so you can endure it. Our God is faithful. He is so faithful. And He will always give you a way out. So what do you do when you're tempted? What do you do? I hope that you'll understand this powerful truth that in every temptation, there's an invitation to depend on Christ. That every time you feel trapped, it's an invitation to depend on the grace of Jesus. He doesn't look down on you and say, I'm embarrassed of you. I'm ashamed of you. Now go and do whatever you do, boo-boo. No, He says, you go. Be free. Because of my grace, you can be free. Turn back to the oasis. Turn back to the source of fulfillment. Do it with urgency. Go now. Be full of hope. You're longing for what is good. Don't get stuck with the cheap knockoff. No more, no more. Go your way and walk in truth. As we begin to finish up this morning, there's a big difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is, I got caught. I'm so sorry. I know I got caught. I'm, I'm caught. Repentance is something different entirely. Repentance, re means to turn, pent mean which is high. It's like penthouse. It's to turn from the lower things of the world to the higher things of God. It's all about the re. Some of you, we need to this morning return to God. It's all about the re. And when you're feeling trapped and when you feel caught and when you feel broken and ashamed, what does Jesus say? He says, he doesn't, he, what does Jesus not say? He doesn't say that was not good. Now go to whatever makes you happy. He says, I've got a better path for you. He says, I'm not going to let anyone else throw stones at you. Go, be free. Turn back to me. You are created to walk in truth, to be close to the source of fulfillment. That's where you can find lasting and real joy. When we struggle, when we're tempted, Jesus' grace will find us if we reach out for us. What I'm going to do is I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come and the prayer team to come. And what we're going to do is we're just going to take some time and allow you to reflect on this. I know we've gone, journeyed through a lot of stuff this morning, but maybe you're in a place this morning where you yourself feel that you need to return, return, turn around, turn away from the things. Maybe you feel like the woman in the story we talked about this morning. Maybe you feel like the fish on the beach this morning. This is a chance, this is a space, this is a time for you to come back to the oasis, to come to the Lord. There's a, a fantastic team of people here who would love to pray with you or to be with you, to cry with you, whatever you may need this morning. They're going to be down here at the front. But Dan and the team is going to lead us through a, a song this morning, and then I'll come back and close this out in a prayer for the morning. But if I can encourage you with anything today, is it the urgency of the declaration of Jesus that we see in this story. Go now, be free.
turn away from your life of sin. There's urgency to it. He doesn't say, hey, next Wednesday, why don't you turn around and get yourself back on track? He says, go now. For some of us, that now is now. So let's not miss it.